Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks very much again for downloading or listening or subscribing or whatever way you're dealing with this safe form of communication in the era of the pandemic. I'm going to be reflecting on the extraordinary events of recent days and what it tells us about leadership, the perception of Boris Johnson when news emerged that he was being taken into intensive care, and then look a bit at Keir Starmer's early days, the shadow cabinet, his reaction to the pandemic. Before that, just a kind of warning or something to look forward to, whichever way you look at these things. I did a programme this week on Radio 4 called Left Out of Power, which looked at the challenges facing Keir Starmer. And we interviewed a lot of people, uh, Tony Blair, Peter Hain, John Lansman, Gloria De Piero, Charles Clark and others. The idea was to look at those who have climbed previous ascents towards some kind of electoral glory in the context of bleak defeat. And Labour have had a lot of bleak defeat, so lots of people have tried to climb the ascent to see what lessons there are to be learnt, lessons also from the Corbyn era, lessons about why Labour's previous safe strongholds have collapsed, and so on, just to sort of set the context. And originally, it was going to be a series of three programmes, but when this bloody virus struck, rightly in my view, the BBC said, look, let's do one. It, it's, it seems weird to be doing all these programmes on the challenges for Labour and Keir Starmer when the country's falling apart one way or another. It was the right call. I was saying to my one of my producers, it felt like being in Monty Python, you know, everyone obsessed about whether they're going to survive the next hour and we're analysing what happened to Labour in 1983. So anyway, it went down to one programme, 40-minute programme, which got great reaction on Twitter, so thanks very much if you listen to it. If you haven't, it's on the... Uh, BBC Sounds app and you can download that and tell me what you think about it on Twitter or through other means. But anyway, we obviously did these interviews for the programme and then the interviews were reduced to clips inevitably and they would have breathed a bit longer if it had been three parts but they were fairly compressed. So what I'm going to do in the next few weeks is is play the interviews in full and the first one will be with Tony Blair at the end of this podcast. So a kind of bonus for you, the Blair interview. It's about uh, 20 minutes and I'll talk into it when we get to that point in the podcast. But before that, well, what what drama? I'm always talking about the theatre of politics and what a compelling drama it is, whatever your sort of ideological position. The one thing that can be said about politics at any given time, in my view, is that it is impossible for it to be dull or boring, as some still, I think, see it as being. And the news that Boris Johnson was being moved into intensive care, I think it came on Monday night, was remarkable in many ways. I've I've recently written a book about modern prime ministers, and the lessons of leadership from their various reigns, available on Amazon and Audible uh, during this lockdown period. And I learned something new about leadership and the way we perceive leaders from what happened then, because and I can only reflect on this 
now knowing that he's out of intensive care and okay and as I speak I'm told is in very good spirits to quote number 10 so I think it's legitimate to reflect in this way but before I do I along with everybody else found that news when he was taken into intensive care deeply upsetting and troubling you know although you read all the time about people being taken into intensive care there was a kind of coming home and being brought to vivid life when a public figure of such vivacity is reduced to seemingly fighting for his life because of this damned virus so of course it was troubling but it was fascinating on another level as well because part of the narrative in the days that followed was well who the hell is going to run things now the prime minister is in hospital in intensive care and somehow that narrative which is still running actually had many many consequences but one of them was to elevate Boris Johnson into a bigger prime minister than he actually had been because the implication was that government was virtually paralyzed without this mighty figure with a capacity for leadership and decision making that could not be replicated elsewhere within that government and that stretches the evidence of what he was like in this crisis and on other matters too. Now part of the questioning around this narrative was to do with the fact that there is a sort of constitutional question when the Prime Minister is absent in the midst of a national emergency who is in control and there was some questioning about the powers and range of Dominic Raab's control questioning based on his constitutional position and his own character which were entirely legitimate but they too kind of flattered Boris Johnson because in his absence potentially tragic absence he grew into this big almost mythological figure the sun running front pages you know look after yourself because Boris risked his own life to look after us and all this kind of stuff and it was interesting that he grew whilst being confined to a bed with oxygen he grew as a prime minister and as I say this is not just about a wholly understandable sympathy for his plight anyone who didn't feel sympathy for his plight would be sort of inhuman but it was more than that. It bigged him up as a leaderly figure. Whereas the evidence suggests that, frankly, decision-making in this government has been somewhat fragmented and contradictory. And there will be many questions to ask, not now, but later, as to what happened in the early weeks of this crisis when it was clear, or it seemed to be clear, that this epidemic was spreading to the UK and once here would have as many potential casualties as any other European country. Why, why would it be different here? So there are big questions because Britain had that notice. There was a very interesting piece by Reuters this week examining the degree to which the scientific experts 
underestimated its significance, this plague significance in the early days, and a fascinating sort of area which we won't know the answer to for some time until there's an inquiry. The degree to which they misread it or they told number 10 what number 10 wanted to hear in terms of their assessment of the significance of this virus and its impact on the United Kingdom. But either way, it wasn't as if the UK had been performing brilliantly in its response to this nightmare when Boris was fit and well. His questions at the press conference, or his answers at the press conferences, were not more coherent or memorable or precise compared with some of the other ministers who now take his place at these um, somewhat unsatisfactory uh, daily events. His decision-making was flawed. It seems to me that allowing, for example, that big race event to go ahead days before things were finally brought to a halt here, the decision not to stop football matches and to sort of put the onus on the football clubs to stop them for various reasons and so on. At the very least, there are questions to be asked. And yet, now people cannot wait for his return, that, you know, there is now this narrative running that only then will government get a grip when the Titanic hero takes his seat in number 10 again and firing on all cylinders to lift the nation and all the rest of it. And it is just so interesting. Other prime ministers have fallen ill in much less dramatic context than the Boris Johnson move to intensive care earlier in the week. But when they did, the impact was very different because it wasn't in the context of I'm talking post-World War. I know Churchill was ill during the war, and that there were, are some echoes with that, but we didn't know very much about it at the time. But um, Eden, uh, Macmillan and others have been ill, and the result was more that they were seen as puny and vulnerable and lacking leaderly qualities. And with Boris, as I say, he's acquired a new aura which is a sort of interesting development. There is one area in policy terms where I have some sympathy with the government, which is this wholly bizarre focus now on what the exit strategy to the lockdown is and when will it be implemented and why don't we know all the details now. It's less than a month ago that much in the media were saying, come on, why aren't we having a lockdown? And it was a perfectly valid question to ask, given what uh, other countries were doing in response to this dark virus. So they put in the lockdown. The libertarian instinct was finally curbed, and they did it belatedly. And incidentally, in their focus now on the their hope that the lockdown has saved lives raise inevitable questions about why they didn't do it earlier. If it's saving lives now, it would have saved lives the week before. But anyway, they did it. And now right away, here we go. Why are, why are we still in lockdown? What, what's the way out of this? And all the rest of it. And the answer, inevitably, well, they don't really answer the question because they can't fully. I know Germany planned to publish outlines of an exit strategy next week, but because they've tested more thoroughly, they have much more knowledge and information 
about their population. And that's another thing, by the way, that the great Titanic leader didn't do to proactively get the testing kits in place. So we had information about the impact of this virus. It's another example. Where is he? The great figure who had the whole government and country dancing to his brilliant decisions didn't get enough tests in early enough so we have information but he did do the lockdown the lockdown they say is having an impact and because there is this constant need for a new direction to the narrative they're now being asked about the exit strategy but without information about who's had it, who hasn't had it yet, and so on. It seems quite hard for a lockdown to be lifted, even in a phased way, of great significance until that information is available, and looking closely at what other countries are doing as well. But it's quite hard for them to say it. They are, this government, used to having a very doting, certainly newspaper response to whatever they're doing, and not used to being under huge pressure from newspapers. And the broadcasters are greatly influenced still by newspapers, even though the newspapers are having a bit of a crisis, inevitably, like just about every other sector in this epidemic. And so they find themselves, the government and those scientific officials, who were so revered early on because they are not politicians. There is an instinct in the media to revere non-elected people. But I think we'll proved to have been flawed themselves as human beings like politicians. Anyway, they're under huge pressure now to lift this lockdown and publish an exit strategy and all the rest of it. And while they could, over time, publish the outlines and principles of an exit strategy, I suspect that too would raise many, many questions. When precisely? Which sectors will be back to normal? And what about social distancing in X and Y and Z? I, I think the, the metaphor about a war is for once right and not overstated. And I think the need to get it right is more important than to rush anything. But these daily news conferences are very interesting because they sort of demand a new line each day. And I think the government is aware that if they don't come up with a new line each time, it looks as if they are merely responding pathetically and weakly to the virus. It's as if the virus is turning them on the defensive. So they feel the need each time to make some kind of announcement for the media to feed on. And I bet this exit strategy will be a running story over Easter in this glorious weather and all the rest of it and well into next week. I'm recording this over the Easter weekend. If you're listening to it next week and it's raining, it's gloriously sunny here. One of those who've been calling for some sort of outline of an exit strategy is uh, Keir Starmer. So I found that quite interesting because that's the one thing I sort of disagree with him. I don't think there is the rush yet to get that right. The, the rush now is to make this lockdown effective and in the meantime get these tests in which they've pledged or described as a target of 100,000 tests by the end of April. That, I think, should be the priority and sort out the exit strategy, let's say, when we've got more information. But on the whole, Kistama has had a good start as Labour leader. And the difference is kind of in what I suggested last week. There was a lot of talk before he got elected that no one would notice. And I suggested last week, I think, in the podcast, that the change would be so marked with the Jeremy Corbyn 
era that it would be noticed because Jeremy Corbyn was not leaderly. I think the reasons for his failed leadership are more complex than some have suggested. And when there's time and a lull in everything else, I might do a podcast reflecting on what happened and what form the failures took. But for sure, Corbyn was not a leaderly figure. And by the end, although I don't think this was his intention at the beginning, chose colleagues on the basis of their loyalty to him. And a lot of them weren't capable of framing an argument, of being forceful in interviews and so on. And so arguments weren't made and everything got lost. And Jeremy Corbyn himself was barely visible as a leader for much of the time of his leadership. So already it feels very different. Keir Starmer, wholly predictably, has a commendable solidity and conveys a sense of authoritative confidence and competence, which some recent Labour leaders have struggled to convey because of their own personal doubts and lack of self-confidence about being a leader. He evidently doesn't feel that. And so I think it does feel different that there is now an opposition scrutinising a government. And George Osborne tweeted, George Osborne is an unreliable narrator, but he has this great fascination with politics from across the political spectrum. And he tweeted that the Tories will notice a difference when we're through this current nightmare to face a formidable opposition having faced a shambolic one for several years and a deeply divided and clearly visibly divided Labour Party. And so that feels different. And he announced a shadow cabinet of solid, formidable performers and a front bench team to back up the shadow cabinet. And it does feel different because he is a different kind of leader. We don't know yet what form his leadership will take, but it will clearly be different from the past few years. And he shows he understands what a leader has to do. He only has words and levers within his own party to convey certain things. So right away, he's addressed the issue of anti-Semitism, but in a very precise way, pointing out what he's going to do and how he's going to be judged. And he makes his judgment the highest bar of all, which is when those former Labour figures, supporters or members who left because of anti-Semitism come back. And that is, of course the highest bar but the necessary bar and he's been very clear as to the sequence and that conveys change and it conveys a change of values it conveys a change of the way a Labour Party is going to be organised and so on and that's something he needs to do right away and has done. So in a difficult context because rightly the focus is on Boris Johnson recovering and the government's response to this pandemic in the small space available he's already I think made a difference and politics feels a bit different as a result in the United Kingdom. Talking of which say I uh, did a few interviews for this uh, program left out of power one of them was with Tony Blair now this program 
I hope if you listen to it on BBC Sounds, you won't be able to tell this too much, but the programme was put together in rather bizarre circumstances. The interviewees on the whole were at home. I was doing the interviews at home. The producer with me for the Tony Blair interview, he was at his house, Martin Rosenbaum, and he was recording the interview, I think, unless we had a studio manager bravely in Broadcasting House, which is basically empty now. So the quality isn't kind of the quality of interviews that you would normally get. I'm talking about the technical sound quality. But each of the interviewees reflected in different ways about the way they saw the challenges ahead. And this is the full interview with Tony Blair. It's about 20 minutes, not that long. But obviously, in a single program, you can only play short clips. So, so this was the interviewer. So he was in his house. I was in my house. Producer Martin Rosenbaum was in his house. And we were obviously getting him to it wasn't a sort of interview to interrogate his position because that would have been a different kind of thing it was to get him to reflect on his view in terms of the structure of our program which was are the lessons to be learned from when he was labor leader he became labor leader in 1994 and his reflections on what he would be doing now so anyway here it is this is the tony blair interview which formed part of the program left out of power and we'll have another one next week with a very different kind of perspective but here's the Tony Blair one. Tony Blair if I could begin by asking you about when you became leader in 1994 uh, actually just before then Labour had been ahead in the polls but you clearly felt an absolute need to convey the fact that the party had changed. It became New Labour. You uh, rewrote Clause 4. Uh, and all these vivid examples of change were accompanied by policy development that echoed those vivid examples. I just wonder whether you could convey to us why you thought it was so urgent to communicate to the wider electorate the degree to which, under you, Labour were changing. We'd, we'd been out of power for 15 years. Uh, we'd lost four elections in a row. The last election in, in 1992 um, was an election we could easily have won, but we didn't. And in the end, John Major, this is often forgotten, got more votes than I think any Conservative leader has had in an election for you know over several decades. And that was because, in the end, there was still a lingering fear about the Labour Party. So I was determined that we should we should change, um, because I was also determined that we had to not just to win an election, but to be able to win successive elections. Because one of the things, again, that people often forget is that the Labour Party, other than the period 1997 to 2010, had never actually won two full terms of government not in 1945, not in 1964. So, um, yeah, no, we, we were, this was my overriding concern, was that we had to do something completely different. Which obviously begs the question, if you were becoming leader now, uh, after four successive election defeats, in arguably a darker picture, Labour behind in the polls were behind before this national emergency began, what would be the kind of things that you would be thinking about doing now, and you've, you've said in your many talks the context is very different, to 
again convey that Labour had changed? The context is different and worse. I mean, I was fortunate in a way that when I took over in 1994, I succeeded John Smith, who'd made certain changes and who was a very credible figure in his own right. And this came after a period of nine years of leadership of Neil Kinnock, who'd, who'd made you know, huge changes in reorienting the Labour Party away from the last time, frankly, we got a surge of this sort of ultra-leftism, which is in the great sort of Benite um, attempt to revolutionize the Labour Party in the late 70s, early 80s. So I, I, the context that I um, inherited was actually much more benign. And even in that benign context, I felt the need to change. So if, if I was coming into a leadership position now, and I think this is the single most important decision the leader has to take, is you know, do you need completely to reorient the Labour Party and set it on a different path? And you know, my view of this, look, that other people will completely disagree with it, but my view is that you have to do that if you're going to win. Because I think what happened at the last election uh, in December 2019 was such a, a dramatic breach of the bond between the Labour Party and so much of its traditional support that unless you show people you are on a new path and there's no ifs or buts about it, you know, there is a new direction, I think it's very hard to get those people back. Before I explore with you what you think that new path should be, could we explore the changing context? Isn't one of the big differences um, that uh, in the mid-1990s, the role of government, the state, was still very, very difficult for Labour? Uh, memories of the 70s and its vote-losing statist policies in the 80s. But uh, in the Theresa May era, she spoke about the good that government can do. Before this virus really took hold, and obviously I'll ask you about the virus implications, uh, Rishi Sunak in his budget hailed borrowing and saying, this is the way we can grow the economy and productivity. And isn't that a big difference? That uh, It's obviously absurd to say Labour won the argument when they lost the election, but some of the political tidal waves have moved leftwards, or is that wrong? Okay, so this is absolutely fundamental. It's a very, very interesting and important question. Um, and obviously, the policies that you pursue today are different from the policies of 20 years ago because the, the context is completely different. And, and by the way, I've always said this. If, if, if I was back in power today, of course, the policy agenda would be completely different. But here's the thing that the Labour Party really has to understand. Yes, it's true. People recognize the need for investment, for a fiscal stimulus, as indeed they did back in 1997, by the way. It's one of the reasons we were elected. And they recognize a greater role for government, as they did in a more limited way back in 1997. So, and the left will always win. Progressive parties win when people think the community's got to come together. There's, there's got to be more of a sense of social cohesion, social action, um, enhancing and empowering the, the, the ability of the individual to advance, right? That's always, the, the, the progressive side of politics always wins when people understand the need for collective action to advance individual interests, ambitions, and aspirations. However, you only get trusted to be the people that do that 
if people think this is not some ideological experiment that you're engaging in, but it's a set of practical policies by people who understand the future and people who are prepared to be tough with the choices they're making at the same time as they're, they're, they're moving forward with the role of government and the role of the state. So, for example, the reason we kept people together with us through those three terms of Labour government, when we gave what was, after all, the biggest expansion in, in, in public investment the health service and our education services had ever known. <laughs> Literally, the government of which I was the leader and then with Gordon also, we made the largest investment in public services ever. Right. We managed to do that because we were seen as responsible. We were seen not as anti-business, but pro-business. And we put reform alongside the investment. If we hadn't done that, we would never have got the permission to do it. We would just have been seen as an old tax and spend Labour Party that wanted to tax and spend for the sake of it. So this is the fundamental, the Labour Party will make a massive and fundamental error if it confuses people's desire to have much more investment in the public realm and a bigger role for the state with a return to old style state socialism. If it does that, it will literally hand the entire agenda over to the Tories. And the Tories, you know, the thing about the Conservative Party, you've always got to realize, and I study them and have studied them over the years, you know, their great strength is their flexibility, their adaptability. So for them, it's no problem. Okay, there were 10 years of austerity. Now they're the anti-austerity party. <laughs> it's, you know, they've just moved from one set of policies to literally the polar opposite, and they've done it perfectly easily. Okay, so if you want to be the people that are put in charge of that agenda, you've got to understand what the public's looking for and what they're not looking for. One other contextual question before I ask you about the path you think they should head towards. Um, the pandemic. Now, I know you will disagree. So there's, uh, you know, I mentioned it, but, but he's not the only one. Obviously, Corbyn says this shows his statist arguments uh, are, are, are being uh, vindicated overnight almost. But do you, what is your reading of where the politics will land in this pandemic crisis with hundreds of billions being borrowed, the state running so many things. Um, is this just an immediate consequence of a national emergency and then the norms will return? Or is your reading of it that this does change politics, in which case, with what implication for Labour? It's a bit of both, Steve. So, first of all, people are completely able to distinguish between measures governments and the state takes at a time of national emergency. And this is a national emergency, literally equivalent to something like the Second World War. It, it is equivalent to it. But people are perfectly able to distinguish between the need to take extreme measures in extreme circumstances and normal circumstances and normal life when they, they won't necessarily agree with those extreme measures. Right. That's the first thing. However, having said that, and, and that's why it would be extremely foolish to make a sort of just complete read across to the things you do at this moment in crisis, to the things you do in normal life. What I think will survive the crisis is a belief that we have to rebuild resilience in our public services. One of the, the key things in all of this is 
when that investment in the health service, the massive investment that we've put in, when that stopped and was replaced by cuts and austerity, then that is one reason why we are having to take such dramatic measures today, because we don't have the resilience within our healthcare system. So I think, yes, there will be, after this, a real desire to keep the sense of public spirit, public service, social cohesion, investment in the public realm. But I come back to the point that I make. If you want to be the people trusted to do that, it's got to be forward-looking. It's got to be um, non-ideological, but practical. And it's got to be done in a way that makes people think you care about value for money, about doing things efficiently and effectively. And you're not just taking this as an opportunity to revive um, you know, an old ideology that's had its day. And there is, I think, some parallel here with the financial crisis, because I have this conversation constantly with people on the left after the 2008 financial crisis. And they were saying to me, no, no, you don't understand. Politics has now moved to the left. Everyone wants um, government spending more money. And I just used to say to people, I understand that's what you want, but tell me the evidence that that's what's happened. And actually, it, it didn't happen. People, if anything, moved to the right. So I'm not saying this will happen this time. I think there will be, as I say, this great rebelief in the public realm, but you don't get to own that and, and be the people entrusted to do it unless you do it in a very careful way. So in order to capture that future uh, once uh, we're through this emergency, what are the kind of things that you would be doing specifically in policy areas i mean between 94 and 97 I, I we've discussed some of them but education education and so on have you got a sense of the precise equivalence because under new labor there was a very detailed uh, policy program that was unveiled to accompany things like clause four and all the rest of it H have you got a sense of where you would want policy to go post-pandemic, post the Sunak budget and so on, if you were a Labour leader now? So I, in, in my institute, which has got almost 300 people working in it now in different parts of the world, and one part of it is all around policy. We've got roughly 25 to 30 people in that policy part of what we do. And here's my view, because I study this a lot and I think about it a lot. The question, the question really for progressive politics, not just in the UK, but worldwide, is what is the modern agenda? And my view is it's all about the technology revolution. This is the 21st century equivalent of the 19th century induction. Um, it's going to change and is changing absolutely everything around business, public services. It should change the way government works. And the people who master this and show that they understand it and recognize how government has to help people steer through very, very difficult times because there will be massive change happening, huge opportunities, by the way, but also great displacement, for example, of jobs, um, big changes in ways of working and ways of living, and um, the whole climate revolution, which, because I think green politics today is not any longer a single issue politics, it's a whole view of the world and, and of politics. All of that is massively dependent on adapting ourselves to this technology revolution. So I think that is the overarching, the biggest thing, because the question will be, can you use this technology revolution for the purposes of social justice, 
or does it become a new social divide? So um, my view is that's what it's about. I mean, of course, it's about a thousand other things as well, you know, social care, um, building the right infrastructure, um, yes, details around education, health, law and order. It's about all of those things. But if you want to look at the one single biggest change that's happening in the world today, it's this technology revolution. And as ever, the progressive side of politics will win when it shows it understands the future and can master it. Could I finally ask you whether, uh, I know when you talk about the centre ground of British politics, it's always accompanied by many detailed examples of what you mean by that. But in a way, hasn't the last few years shown a sort of crisis for that centre ground? There have been so many attempts to command it. A new political party, which lasted about 10 minutes. The Liberal Democrats had high hopes at the last election, and they collapsed. Um, and, and maybe we're entering an era where there is a sort of return to left versus right politics of a more clearly formed type. Um, I, I know you don't think that, but hasn't there been some evidence that people have struggled in recent years in a way that didn't happen with you under New Labour to command this ground? Yeah, well, it's a really a good point. And again, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating and important discussion. But what I always say when people put this to me, I say, no, it's, you're, you're right. The traditional left politics has come back and traditional right politics or, or a sort of rightist nationalist it's a new type of right politics, if you like, in one way, but it's um, it, it's it's clearly it's clearly very right wing. So yeah, that's absolutely true. That is what has happened in this past uh, ten years or so. Something else has also happened. If you take medium-sized countries and above in the Western world, that's let's say countries with a population of over twenty million in the Western world today, not one single progressive, traditional progressive left party is in majority power, not one. Okay, so the other thing that's happened is that yes, the right have moved rightwards and they're managing to win elections. The left has moved back to a traditional form of left and is losing them. And by the way, the one person who bought that trend and set up something new, Macron in France won. So my view is, and. It's true, you know, when, when there were the attempts um, to form something new in the UK, yes, in the end, they found it. Now, uh, you know, we can go into the detailed explanation of that. But my view is the fact that those attempts were being made, the fact that it did look like for a time the Lib Dems could really surge, is itself an indication that the centre ground support has not gone away. It, it's, it's just, it's, it's not on offer. You know, so the question is, is this a supply problem or a demand problem? And I would say it's as much a supply problem as a demand problem. Now, having said that, the center for me, this is, I, I, I've never liked the phrase the center, but it's just the, the shorthand that you use. So I call myself a centrist, but I, in one sense, I, I, I kind of disdain the term because it makes it look as if you're just a splitting the difference between right and left. It's never been what it's about for me. It's why New Labour was a belief for me. It wasn't it wasn't a, simply an electoral tactic. It's the thing that will work if progressive politics can embrace it is understand that the values that we stand for, which is basically trying to help those who 
don't have the opportunities to fulfill their ambitions in life. I mean, that's essentially why you and the why why do you go to the Labour Party, not the Conservative Party? You can go to the Conservative Party if you want to run the country and run it. Let's, let's say that it's best. It's it's about running the country efficiently. Okay, that's what they're about. But actually, for the Labour Party, it's a mission. It's a cause. It's it's about fulfilling people's aspirations and giving people the opportunities that they can't have as a result of their background or or the 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 ability of their parents to provide for them and so on. So that's always what we're about, and that's always what we will be about. But we always fail when we end up confusing the principles that are valid for all time with policies that change for every time. And that's basically what we've got to do now. And if you do that, it will end you up in what people call centrism. But my thing is very simple. Never in Labour's history has it ever won from any other position than one which moves with the grain of the center ground, the center of gravity of British politics, when it's about the future, it's always had to be about the future. And by the way, there has always had to be a significant number of people who were conservators, but actually come to us, including people from the business community. Now, at the moment, the Labour Party's thrown overboard all of that. It's been about the past and big state socialism. It's been, you know, it's been kind of vilifying uh, people who might have voted conservative before. Um, it's been nothing to do, I'm afraid, with addressing the big challenges of the future. So it's got to move from all of that and get back to the position, which is not the position of 1997. It was also the position of 1945. It was also the position of 1964. That's my view. So that was Tony Blair speaking to me shortly before the programme Left Out of Power was uh, put out. And next week we're going to hear from, I think, Peter Hayne because he had a very different take, although he was part of the New Labour era. He was a kind of, well, he, he became loyal because he was a minister and a cabinet minister, but he always had a different view closer in a way to Robin Cook. And and now he's freer to speak. His differences are, are much more vivid and interesting. So I'll put that out next week. Anyway, look, thank you very much for listening. I hope you're all keeping well. For those of you who come to the live shows, hopefully King's Place is going to sort something out. So it's going to be a virtual live rock and roll politics. But I'll let you know if and when we get that sorted out. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. And see you next time.